like Sam Rockwell, but with an Oscar. In honor of Interstellar, which Oscar-winning actor or actress would you want to be trapped on a space mission with? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Elizabeth Taylor because you know she'd bring the booze and she would have fantastic stories to tell through your many years of hypersleep. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. Kristen Stewart, we'd find something to talk about, and I'd have brought the pot, and she'd have brought the Oscar for the Huntsman sequel, which she'll be cast in. Okay, fine, whatever. Fuck it. Halle Berry, she's hot. Hey. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm going to pick Jack Nicholson because he would bring the bourbon chewing gum, and we would have an amazing time, I think. I'm Matt Patches. I'm going to go with Clint Eastwood because of Space Cowboys and also that other one with Matt Damon and the uh, the big wave and the sadness. and The, the Hereafter. Oh, Yo, Hereafter. Matt Damon. That movie wasn't set in space. Uh, well, yeah, but it was deep. Sadness. I'm David Ehrlich. Uh, Dave stole my rationale behind my choice. <laughs> I'm going to go with Penelope Cruz, who I'm reminded won an Oscar for Vicky Cristina Barcelona because she's Penelope Cruz. You guys are disgusting. You're disgusting. <laughs> Don't let Mike Tyson in here. You're allowed to objectify men on this podcast. I know, but I still if I only these three men rules. in a spaceship forever, and I have to choose between like Reese Witherspoon and Anna Paquin. There are all these people. Like, come on, it's not a hard decision. Also, some of your choices are dead. I don't want to be up there with a corpse. I wasn't told it had to be living. Nope. It could be the ghost the of Elizabeth Taylor. Ooh. I definitely did not choose Elizabeth Taylor's corpse. That means she can go out of the spaceship. Oh my god, I definitely really? want the movie of Katie and Elizabeth Taylor's ghosts in space. <laughs> yes. Or just the corpse. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 47 for Tuesday, November 4th, 2014. Happy Election Day. I hope you all voted. Uh, before we get started, David, I believe we have a very special review to share this week. Oh, very special indeed. This comes courtesy of Cinema Paradiso. Is in zero. It's called If I Can Take It, I Can Make It, and I'm going to read it to you all verbatim uh, as per Patch's request. A thorough and thoughtful podcast that tackles the latest films and other movie news. I anticipate new episodes, so something must be said for that. However, there is an awful lot of interrupting, David Ehrlich, over intellectualized ranting, David Ehrlich, refusing to see others' point of view, David Ehrlich, spoilers masquerading as plot setup, David Ehrlich, and complaining about Marvel movies which the team cannot seem to stop watching, despite their general disdain for them. I don't mean to dwell on the bad, like David Ehrlich does. It's a welcome part of my week twice over. I just have to take deep cleansing breaths now and then. Indeed. Um, you know, this is my exact feelings you. on the podcast. I'm so glad. Wow. Did, you Did you write this review? Cinema Paradiso. <laughs> Cinema Paradiso. Oh, I, I want to laminate that. That I took issue with was uh, actually about the Marvel thing. Uh, we, you know, I think I, I speak for us when I say that we like to reflect what's happening. Like we talk about things that interest us, but also, especially when it comes to the reviews, we talk about what's happening in the the world of movies today. And there's really no Avoiding that, I wish Marvel, Marvel, a lot of these Marvel movies didn't exist, but they do, and uh, I don't think it would be true to the spirit of this podcast if we ignored them. So Maybe wanting them not to exist is the problem. Well, I think that's people. more his problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we are going to talk about them, because uh, so we talk about it's what's positive. happening in the world of film. It's a silver so. lining, I guess. They're I like here. that our Thanks intro segment is... Uh, get used to them. 
Our intro segments have become therapy. I like that. I know. Everybody, please, if you want to call in and just talk about what's going on in your life, we'll help yeah. you out. This, uh, that's, what this is, that's what we're here for. But also leave a review, please. We love them. Mamas and papas, how to be a little cool is changing fashion the way he dressed. Attracted to old Bella hoodies, where the money for the cable, the will to fall. All right, so today we are going to talk about professions in film and television. And what we mean by that is when we film critics go see movies or watch more infrequently watch television shows where we see film critics or pop culture writers or journalists, uh, you know, sometimes it makes us cringe a little about the characterization or some of us don't care at all. So the question that we're going to discuss right now is whether or not seeing your own profession reflected on the screen, whether it's impossible to watch that sort of detached in an artistic, critical, just enjoyment kind of way, or whether you have to critique what you see as you're watching it, or if that's just film critics. I know it's not for a fact, because my father, who is a doctor, cannot watch medical shows, and I know plenty of lawyers who have thrown up their hands in disgust about how to get away with murder, which plays fast and loose with the legal profession. So, Are you saying that's not an accurate depiction of law school? Because I was thinking about signing up. Oh, no, that's a documentary. How to get away with murder is a documentary. Okay, Uh, don't ruin my (laughs) illusions. So, Katie, I understand you (laughs) talked to someone about this very thing recently. Yeah, this sounds like a crazy braggy thing, but I had a conversation with a Juilliard trumpet player uh, like a week ago, and I basically you know, like ran into the conversation. I was like, listen, have you seen Whiplash? And he hadn't seen it, but obviously he said, you know, everyone he knew was talking about it. And he compared it to when their dancer friends saw Black Swan in that everyone went to see it. Everyone came out complaining about all the things that got wrong, but everyone really enjoyed seeing it anyway. And I have to think, feel like that's, I mean, Joanna, your dad makes a really fascinating point, but I, I feel like most people, I guess most people who are in professions that aren't often on screen, like doctors and lawyers constantly have TV shows and movies about them. But if you're seeing something about your world, I think you're just kind of so thrilled by the idea of it being on screen that you're going to enjoy it and then enjoy picking it apart for how inaccurate it is. And then critics get this crazy thin skin because of, you know, a million other reasons we talk about every week. But I feel like if you're going to, I don't know, like, why not enjoy it? Like, movies are never going to get everything accurate, so why not have fun picking it apart? Well, because sometimes anyway? it's negative, right? I mean, sometimes it's it's biting and trying to go after these professions in a negative way. Is it and or is to, it just such as in... Like, well, to, like, remove myself from the film character. critic side of it, um, I remember... So I... I I'm also not crazy bragging here. This is the segment where we're not crazy bragging, right? (laughs) I worked on, this is definitely not a brag. I worked on a television pilot with Tim Robbins that Tim Robbins wrote and directed years ago for Showtime. Uh, It was called Possible Side Effects, and it was about the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Both my parents worked for the pharmaceutical industry. My mom is a rep, uh, which means she drives around and pushes drugs to people. And one of the characters in this pilot was a drug rep who was a total skank for lack of a better word who would like go to offices in short skirts and be like hey doctors and like flirt and touch and give them goodies and uh trying to get them to buy drugs and it was this kind of scathing portrayal of all factors and factions of the of the pharmaceutical industry and it just left me with like a really bad taste because 
so so much at least TV drama. I think wants certain professions to look nasty uh, or certain lifestyles to look nasty, so to fuel drama, to fuel like redemptive drama and that was certainly this like make everyone an anti-hero in this business and make it look awful because i mean tim robbins is probably against the pharmaceutical industry in the big picture so he wanted to write something that was scathing and satirical um, but then it kind of paints those professions in a bad light right you can go too far or to make your point i, I don't know it, it just struck uh, me at the time when i'm like is my mom's not a skank well, I mean, my mom's a real estate agent, and when I watch American Beauty, uh, I see Annette Bening's character, and I'm like, well, that's exactly my mom. So, calling <laughs> uh, my mom a skank. <laughs> I kid. Love you, mom. Um, my mom doesn't know what a podcast is. She's not listening to this. But the, uh, the, I, you know, I don't know. My, I, this conversation, I think, is prompted by Birdman, the critic in there, and I think uh, that's a whole different conversation. But that is less about getting into the world of. Uh, profession and having some fun with it and, and finding the using whatever dramatic license is required to, to tell a enjoyable story within that setting birdman is sort of a an attack uh, on a number of different you know everyone is sort of amplified and, and highly stylized and the critics get it only slightly a little worse and, and more mean-spirited than the actors and publicists and everyone else in the movie but uh yeah i don't know for me i i I don't really see this being something that, like, I, I would think that if I were, like, a cop, I would want to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine to sort of laugh it up. But if I had become a cop because I saw Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I would probably be disappointed. <laughs> um, yeah, but I you do want the, like, nuance of profession at some point, right? Like, that. those are the, the movies or the television shows that seem to transcend. I'm thinking of The Wire or something like yeah. that. It seems to go really deep. And for someone to have a, a really nuanced understanding of that profession, instead of just writing based on almost pop culture knowledge, which is what a lot of, especially police procedurals are based on. And a lot of movies too. We, we were talking, uh, Joanna, in your in your emails about this topic, you were talking about Nightcrawler. Um, and I think Dan Gilroy penetrates this lifestyle of someone who f tracks accidents and films for nightly news in some way. Uh, I, I don't know because that seems like a profession that's totally on the fringes and apparently very LA. Uh, we don't really have that in New York too much. I don't. Right. I don't I mean, think. I don't know. But, but there are, I, I there feel a, like, like I can tell when there's nuance there. But you and can when someone has gone really deep. Chasing a story in, in a way, I don't know. Writing about film critically is different than writing, generating internet content. And sometimes you're you're chasing a story that you know will be interesting to people, and and then you have to stop and look at it and say, okay, but is this really the story I want to write? Is this the person I want to be? I don't know. I thought I thought Nightcrawler was interesting for that, and even Birdman because I didn't have the negative knee jerk negative reaction to the the theater critic character um, that some people did, but. I did think about, it made me think about Robin Williams weirdly, and I don't want to get too deep or mawkish about this, but just sort of the way the end of his career was jeered at, and then how you lose sight of what he has contributed to pop culture, and, and then he was gone, and then we all remembered, and I felt a, a really, like very strong emotions about how I had joked about what his career had become. And I, I don't know, that's a weird reaction I had to Birdman, but... How does that pertain to what we're talking about as far as seeing professions? Uh, well, about the ability of something to make you reflect on your own profession, which yeah. I think is a, you know, a really valid thing that happens when you're depicted in a movie, even if it, whether it's accurate or not. 
I think that the the interesting thing to me is that for as someone who I don't want to call myself a dramatist because that sounds like I'm full of crap, but as someone who pays attention to the structure of story, it's always interesting to me to see um, stories that commit to telling what's special about a profession because so often, and I think we might get into this a little bit more in segment three, you see a profession as like window dressing on somebody else's dramatic arc. Or if you look at like television shows that are super popular, you don't see these characters going to work. You see them, you know, at Cheers or, well, I mean, except for something like MASH where it kind of hinges on that. But the idea of like, if you take a profession and you really examine why somebody's doing what they're doing and what the process of that is, you get something like Breaking Bad or The Wire which is, you know, tantalizing to us because it's crime. But I'm convinced you could do it with other things. Like, I've had a long gestating story in my head that I've workshopped with a whole bunch of people just about what the insurance business would be like in a world where there were superheroes. And it feels like <laughs> those, like, little questions you could precipitate out. Or, like, the people that see all the videos on YouTube before they get uploaded, like, that layer of people that see the horrible stuff we actually upload i would like to see a movie about that you, you want more mundane i still don't really well, know well, i still don't really know how what either you or joanna is talking about has to do with how our relationship to our own professions changes our perception of movies that feature them uh, well i mean that's why I, was, I think it's gonna kind of play into any future discussion we have in rom-coms because what happens when you treat a profession as a side thing is you associate like a story arc or a thematic purpose with the profession, which it sounds like is happening in Birdman, or at least it's going to be weird if you apply it to critics because critics are inherently not part of the art or art artist art uh, consumer relationship. So they feel weird whenever they're sort of thrust into narratives. But the idea of having something reflected back at you as a tool in which to tell a story or as the story is about that profession, I think is a major divide in terms of how you I thought what Patches what was saying about. About earlier about the uh, being able to tell if it's a nuanced portrayal of a particular profession. Uh, I think more than that, it's, it's the illusion, projecting the illusion of right. nuance is what's so important. And I think that it's what makes it sort of irrelevant whether or not you belong to whatever job is being portrayed. I think that, you know, even if, if I'm watching a show about a film critic and there is a great show about a film critic, uh, you know, long canceled the critic, uh, which was uh, not exactly <laughs> hyper realist in its approach. Uh, in some ways, closer than you might think. I didn't realize uh, it at the time, but <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> we are all cartoons. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think. No, it doesn't matter between that and watching anything else. That it's all it's all just being able to believe in the same way as buying like Interstellar or a superhero movie about just accepting the integrity of the right. rules that the work establishes for their, its world. Uh, no, and but then the, following the, through on that. The question yeah, is new, uh, the question is can you watch it objectively? No, or can you? Can you watch a film about your own profession and you say you can't watch this anything is... objectively? That's <laughs> okay, that's true. That's true. But can you can you prevent your ego from getting tangled up in what you're seeing reflected back at you on the screen? I think so. If it's an, ex I mean, for the character in Birdman, um, it's obviously an extinct extension of what Alejandro uh, 
whatever his last name is. I can't think. Inaratu? Um, yes, Inaratu is, is chasing here, and, and the different archetypes of the theater world or the entertainment world, uh, you know, we don't feel... It's, it's different than Lady in the Water, which is just kind of a, an occupation attack in some ways, where you might feel the personal... You might feel M. Night Shyamalan coming after you if you are a critic in that position. Here, it seems like an extension of the discussions he's having, and, and yet none of... I, neither of those two movies feels like trying to to write a true film critic character so it wouldn't even dawn on me perhaps to think of it or, or separate myself from it because it just doesn't feel real and that's kind of what I wanted to put to you guys are so many of these occupation driven characters are caricatures but I'm wondering if there are movies that come to mind that try and paint occupation that are heavily involved in occupation they're about that job that are also positive about that job i think we see that very rarely because you either have to be a crazy caricature or it's it's a very negative portrayal of a certain type of job being too deep in your work as if that's a bad thing i don't think we see jobs and occupation as a very positive thing in film. what about like Moneyball? Uh Moneyball. Moneyball. I was just thinking, uh, I was making. going to make a joke yeah. about Foxcatcher and how that really <laughs> sold uh, being arrested. Sports, sports is a good. Yeah, but good Moneyball, or, Moneyball um, is, a, is a nice example of that. Sports or the military? I was, I was thinking. I mean, I was thinking about End of Watch first, and then I thought about Fury. I was End thinking about Watch. End of Watch too. That, that was my thought as well. End of That's Watch is scathing? definitely hot. No, I think it's really positive about yeah. that. But those two guys problem. are so corrupt. I think the problem with the movie is how positive it, th- it thinks it's being. Relative to uh, yeah, maybe what it's actually Moneyball. So funny that was my first thought too. Money, I think Moneyball. journalism up until I don't know what uh, what well, Shattered Glass or whatever that that that, that film was great was pretty Hayden well. Movie. Well, Kill the um, Messenger yes. brings well, it back. It was the pretty most well. recent, the Jeremy Renner Kill the Messenger movie that nobody saw that came out a few weeks uh, ago. Yeah. Kind of brings well, yeah, and if you back. extend even to like documentaries, journalism's been treated. I feel like very fairly. Over, but I was going to say uh, I was going to say broadcast news, which yeah. is. About journalism, but also kind of about a lot of jobs. Journalists are great, really aren't work. they? And I then, can definitely then separate myself from how great they are. Sometimes when it's a puff piece about your your occupation, I mean, there's got to be a reason that You've Got Mail is my favorite romantic comedy of all time because it's got huge flaws in it. It's a terrible premise. But it paints booksellers as just the most heroic, wonderful thing. And that's what I was for so long. And they, you know, you know <laughs> Foxcatcher. Uh, it's amazing. So. <laughs> Foxcatcher backdoor sequel, You've Got Mail. Are you breaking this news? Yes. You heard it here first. Today's subject is games with simple plots. I'd like to welcome our guests. Would each of you please say who you are and give a brief summary of the plot of your game? Yes, hello. My name is Pac-Man and I eat dust and fruit. My name is Donkey Kong. I throw barrels at a guy. Hi, I'm Cloud Strife from Final Fantasy VII. My game's plot is pretty simple. It goes like this. I was a mercenary working for the avalanche gang Awesome eco-terrorists who you'd probably want to bang I got trapped in a reactor shortly after my last grade And got shot into a... I don't know about you guys, one of my most enjoyable moments at the theater this year was watching John Wick. The problem is when you try to explain the premise of John Wick to other people, it kind of falls apart. And you end up just saying, just go watch Keanu like punch and shoot a lot of people. So my question here is... Is there such a thing as a post-story movie? Can we think of other movies where the story is so bad and it doesn't matter? Um, 
David Ehrlich. You just said post story and got David's attention. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Most movies that David likes are post story. Well, I mean, like I know Godzilla is like a post human movie that, that David just, Ehrlich just loves. Just because they share the word post in the, the way we describe it. You literally them. like made a noise like a dog. <laughs> no, no my, I, I think th- that there's no way that you could say that John Wick is post story. I mean, like it's it, it has a story. It's it's just a just story. A is terrible sort of story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is why I, you know, I, when the story really falls apart, the movie did for me as well. I think the first half is a great deal of fun. The second half is kind of interminable. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know. I'm not the one to answer this question. I, most of my favorite um, movies have nothing that most people. But is there is there things. one that's bad? It's one that you think is objectively bad or 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 thin or. That yeah, attempt what was Space Jail? What necessary. was Space Jail called? Oh, Lockout. Uh, lockout. Yeah. lockout. I don't get the love think, for that I think, movie. I really think I think that's the term awful. for this is just high concept. Like, if you could say mm, it in the same way. Yeah, Lucy I, might no, be David's answer. I wouldn't call it no, but high concept. High concept can like, be good, though. Like hit, Hitman Revenge for Dog Killing. Is that high concept? Joanna, I feel like what you're talking about is a movie that that's as you're watching concept, it, you know that... Well, I mean, but that's the that's the irony of the term high concept. Okay, here's, here's the deal. Not... There's a difference between mindless entertainment that people are like, oh, I just like to go to the movies and, and shut my brain off. And then there's we snobby critics, as we have been called countless times, when we go to see John Wick, Never. we should just sit there and say, this movie makes no sense. Why am I watching it? Except I didn't. I just said I want to watch Keanu punch a bunch of people. And so I don't know yeah. if I was having, I just decided to turn off my snobby film critic, but I'm not the only snobby film critic no, who decided to do that. So it's quality but do you feel like in it's that something? Realm. To me, I feel like it's always the point where I make a decision where I'm sitting in a movie and being like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. This is totally insane. This could never happen. And then clapping my hands in glee and loving it anyway, which it's kind of hard to explain why that happens. But like, my, I mean, my most recent example is probably White House Down, which I adored and everybody else thought was mm. dumb. And it is really no, dumb. No, I but think it's great. Enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, but well, I feel you like, just like it because you're in it. Yeah, exactly. My... Uh, <laughs> My, I really save the world with my flag waving skills. Um, no, I feel. I mean, it's it's not really turning off my brain because I do recognize Never. all these like critical brain things. But I then it doesn't outweigh whatever weird like you know what's, what's the word like the, your your spinal brain like your lizard brain anyway whatever pleasure that part of my brain is getting is not outweighed by my smart brain telling me it's dumb. I mean, there's nothing. I think this is one of the the central fallacies of. Uh film appreciation which is that uh the story is paramount and that something that is absurd is inherently dumber than a story that is more conventionally told uh or replies better to the laws of the world as we know them Uh, i think white house white house down which is uh, you know tells a very absurd story is incredibly intelligent in the craft involved in how it tells that story it's not an accident that that movie in my and I guess Katie's mind, uh, works like a well-oiled machine and hits all these really fun beats and uh, and satisfies its audience on on its own terms. And um, you know, even if those terms are borrowed from the the great Roland Emmerich movies of old, but uh, <laughs> I I mean I think that that's not the case at all. I think Lucy uh, and you know the first half of John Wick are brilliant. Um, I they I think that these movies just activate a different part of your brain rather than asking you to turn it off altogether. You see something like uh, The Imitation Game is a movie that asks you to turn off your brain. I mean, like um, <laughs> what's uh, like Nightcrawler, which which tells you you know we don't have to rehash this, but Nightcrawler Please tells don't. you exactly what to think you know at every moment. 
these movies, these, they're, those are the movies that I feel. Nightcrawler is, again, not a great example. The Imitation Game and Theory of Everything are two examples of films that you'll see in coming weeks that um, are own, moving in their own ways, but really uh, they, they, they require no thought of your own. Uh, those well, are the movies okay. that ask you to turn hey, off your brain. Before we get off on a David tangent about turning off your brain, Patches and Dave, what are your movies Thank that... You. You love to spite yourselves. Um, well, I clearly go to bat for Green Lantern to this day, so I'm going to stand up for it again here. Is it the best sci-fi film since New Hope? <laughs> did uh, you say I, that? I did not say that for the record. Jordan our, Hoffman our, our, said record, that. Our, uh, our guest on last week's review episode, Jordan Hoffman, is the one who has that quote. But, um, you know, I'm a fan of those comic books, and I just take a... a simple pleasure in seeing it brought to life and that's that's all there is to it and i i won't go too far into this but i think dumb and dumber 2 falls into this category for me uh the first one definitely falls the first one definitely falls into that category and the second one miraculously conjures some of the same joy uh not to the same extent but uh does does a good job being a what twenty two year old sequel or something like that um which is insane but dave how about you uh, I guess if I'm going to go for a boilerplate answer for a movie that plot-wise has no reason to exist, even when you're done enjoying watching it, I'm going to have to stick with The Fifth Element, which I will still watch at any point, even though, I, I don't know, there was a woman who was a new element, and she discovers war, but <laughs> it's okay because she discovers love soon after. Luke Besson, the master of these movies that we're talking about. Uh, yeah, like, yeah it's, he really it's, it's, like, is. written for a 13-year-old boy, but, like, everyone else is kind of just okay watching it. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. She can good. going to talk about the most important genre in film that ever has been and ever will be and that is the rom-com the impetus for this particular conversation is the recent cancellation of several tv shows that have a rom-com base to them so my question to you guys is wait 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 before (laughs) before you throw it to the rest of us i want to hear because i watched one episode of a to z and none of manhattan love story these these were not good rom-coms oh no no no. they're not okay so there's been a trend of rom-com premise heavy tv shows this season including selfie manhattan love story marry me marry me a to Z. Oh, we said it at once um yeah so you guys have to get married now. This, oh. <laughs> this is this is the trend this is the evident trend but we've already lost manhattan love story no loss there terrible show a to z it was just deeply deeply quirky and just so premisey that i just i don't regret it leaving either but the question I've seen every episode <laughs> but the question is is rom-com a genre that translates into serialized telling uh, storytelling like television or does it is it better suited for films because we only want to spend 90 minutes with these people and see this pat 
love story and we don't want to spend a protracted time seeing the actual warts and all of a love story or conversely it seems just so preposterous and unrealistic if we don't see the warts and all over that long period of time so that's my question to you guys is if you think the rom-com can sustain in a serialized format if there is a tv show like parks and recreation that is sort of a rom-com you know is it is it only partially a rom-com and that's why it works I think that How I Met Your Mother came really close if they would have, like, cut one season out that I felt like the showrunners didn't want to do, and um, that sort of threw them off the ending that they wanted to stick. I think they could have changed it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a sustainability where you're invested in characters, even when you think that their romance and their concept of romance is stupid, just, like, the ability of using time and flashback and that structure of a sitcom to tell a complex story. I just wish it didn't end the way it did because it sort of felt like it was invalidating everything that you invested in it. But in terms of actually investing in it, I feel like I sort of got closer than I have with any sort of serialized love story that I've seen for any prolonged period of time. It's pivoted. Sorry. No, I was just going to say there aren't many with like one couple, right? Tracking one couple. The interesting thing about like A to Z or Manhattan Love Story is that they were all about one couple somehow. They were going to sustain that for an entire television show, right? Which... Well, I mean, that's that's new, but it's like the will they, won't they, or the Cheers version where they just do is sort of... No, will they, won't they is that... maybe the liquid crack of tv storytelling like that is the most compelling (laughs) any story tv storytelling is but to like to pivot it slightly back to film do what can you think of a rom-com where you would want to spend several seasons with that couple do you think that there is a style because the five-year engagement felt long just already (laughs) where it was i can think of a lot of of romantic comedy couples that i enjoy watching and, and could conceive of spending more time with but i think that you know, it, it's more the narrative arc that is so. Stag- I think, like you know, it's just a, a larger question of whether or not uh, there is romance after in if there's comedy in uh, being together rather than the romance of it. If there's comedy in, in relationships, or I mean, if there's uh, these movies, and there have been a few romantic comedies, I feel that uh, take place after most romantic comedies uh, which traditionally have ended it's sort of like the ain't them body saints of romantic comedies ain't them body saints <laughs> was pitched as you know a movie that begins when most westerns end uh but you're the only person to bring ain't them body saints into a conversation about manhattan love story <laughs> yeah. I you um, no i i think but i think that's the the challenge is uh and like somebody like judd apatow has has dabble with this in, on, in the mainstream in the past few years I feel oh, and you know five year engagement has his stamp on it so I guess that it's all in the same um, under the same umbrella but yeah I think that like you know it's so much harder to find the comedy in relationships rather than in the comedy leading up to them and that's why yeah. you have the relationships the established couples who sort of augment these uh, you know the romantic stories that like the, the like you have in the five year engagement like you had with Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann's characters in Knocked Up um, that allow you to look at that side of things and poke fun at them for easy laughs, but it's hard with the with the main arc, uh, and that's why in in The Office or Friends or Brooklyn Nine Nine or any of these shows, they just drag out the romances for years at a time, and then when the couples inevitably get together, the show is all run into trouble. I guess we're not. I will credit. Um, 
I'll credit Happy Endings for being a show that makes being married look really fun because, uh, you know, it's it's a show like most. I mean, like any TV show, it's about more than just one central relationship. But uh, Brad and Jane, the married couple in that yes. show, were really funny and really fun to be around. I would also I'm, credit I'm, I'm Mad just... About You. That was the whole premise oh, of Mad yeah, About You is that's like a married couple. Is Moonlighting? Is Moonlighting? Did they become a couple in Moonlighting? But I think that's I think the thing. Moonlighting did. is the classic TV storytelling example where it fell apart once they did get together. Hmm. right yeah like they finally yeah will they they did and then everyone was like oh the sizzle's gone <laughs> Boring. So, yeah <laughs> that's the that's the question well that's yeah. what's so funny about rom-coms i think and and my big question after you kind of posed this question to us in email form joanna was like why has rom-com become how did rom-com even become a thing that was viable in in film or television i think early rom-coms were screwballs and and like it was about it was about the quirks it was about the mad dash to whatever xyz plot driven point they this couple had to get to and they fell in love and it was a big hoopla um and and the the ones that have tried to replicate that in the last 10 years are the Matthew McConaughey Kate Hudson movies that everyone hates and rom-coms don't really work like we the best rom-coms are rom-droms right mm. i mean rom-coms <laughs> rarely function because mm. what, what's their fuel that it's not that funny to be in a relationship it's complex and interesting and it has well, some funny why, parts but like before midnight of course i couldn't i just can't go this whole conversation without at least just saying those two words well all three of those movies are really funny that's what he means right no no those movies are funny for sure it's a wrong i mean they're really they're really funny funny. and before midnight might actually you know at least for the first half be the funniest one but it's definitely uh i was just thinking i was just thinking about what the perfect formula i always thought was was the screwball comedy plot of remarriage where you've got a couple that mm-hmm. was married, their marriage fell apart, and then they're thrust back together, and they love Mr. each other the Mrs. whole time. Smith. Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Mrs. Smith, the Hitchcock, not the Lyman. <laughs> but yeah, you you know Philadelphia Story or whatever, and and you so you have these this couple that knows each other and can dig into each other, but they have that spark as well, and I love that so much. And the cardboard copy of. Oh, they meet, they fall in love. In 90 minutes, we're supposed to track this whole entire story and we know it's going to end happily ever after when, of course, we know it probably won't. I mean, it's just, it's interesting to me. Rom-com is a is a genre that has flailed so much in the past, I would say, 20 years. I mean, and maybe that's my get off my lawn moment of the, of the podcast, but like, you know, in the, <laughs> the 90s, there were a lot of rom-coms that I really, really loved and it's harder and harder to find them. We all liked What If, but you know that's well i think that some of the best rom- like romances like and rom-coms that we've seen are like you were saying it's part of shows like parks and recreation or i think about new girl which kind of set up this will they or won't they on the show and then ignored it for a long time and then brought it back in this really satisfying way and then when they got together it was less great but that part of it you know if you can take out these separate storylines but then shows that are ostensibly about something else i think that's really the success of the rom-com on television it has been for a long time i think making these shows just about a single romance is kind of proving that like fashion was saying like it's not that interesting you have to have something else going on right yeah i mean Movies i think it's interesting it. this <laughs> segment fell in with the profession segment because the great thing about parks and recreation is every time it doesn't need to be a romance it becomes an excellent show about jokes and civics so it's like <laughs> you you have to have something else because it's um I don't know. I, I think I've talked about this before, but like how the traditional structure of what we talk about as a romantic comedy is based on the medieval rules of chivalry, where it's basically you would get like Gamergate obsessed with a girl, but she would be royalty and you'd be a knight and therefore you'd never be able 
to actually be with her, so you would pledge yourself unending to her no matter what. So that's where the, you know, end of the second act rejection that turns around and becomes the acceptance comes about. And um, it is sort of played like a farce in the same way that weddings are linked in comedies throughout classic drama. The weird thing is, like, now that we're living in this current age where, you know, the sexes are attempting to become more equal, at least more than they were in the Shakespearean age, and, you know, we're approaching relationships completely differently. I'm not really sure if this trope is infinitely usable anymore. It's more fun as, like, if you're watching a story about two people that happen to be in a romance, but the story is about the people, then if the focus is this relationship is going to be the story that we tell and it's going to end in its highest point because that's when we're culturally okay with leaving these people. So you want the uh, the thin man version of romance where, you know, they're in love and married, but they're solving crimes. Well, I mean, if we're and talking drunk. about movies or serialized <laughs> uh, romantic comedies, I would say like either if you're going to take it to television, you got to have some other hook. You can't just endlessly be like, this is the story of our love, which is sort of how I met your, mo- how I met your mother got away with it because it became the story of this group of friends. Yeah. Or... What but I think, I think really it was going to be that from the very beginning. Like, I think saying it was a story of our love was a gimmick, and then it was just another friend's rip-off. That right, really but well. I mean, the reason we have so many, uh, you know, rom-coms now is because, because the pilot season when they were all written was before How I Met Your Mother fell on its face in its last three weeks. Yeah. So it's some sort of aping of that. The other thing I'd like to see in movies is someone to attempt to do a rom-com sequel and make that sequel talking about the original. That's why I wasn't completely against the idea of a say-anything TV show because I think the idea of, like, who is Lloyd Dobler after he's the perfect boyfriend is an interesting question. It's just not about the romance It's not going to be funny. It's about something else. Right? Well, it could be. I feel like, I like that idea, though. Make a rom-com and then make the sequel the rom-drom. I like that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah that's or just make the sequel about the, the consequences of the is. yeah the comedy. Wait, does anyone I mean, watch? I don't think it has to be dramatic. Does anyone watch about a boy, the new adaptation of? No. I watched like the first couple episodes. I couldn't. I couldn't. I love that movie actually, but I couldn't watch that television show. But that's not. I mean, about a boy isn't really a rom com, is it? It's, it's a rom com between, no, it's it's between a kid and a grown ass man. Like, <laughs> no. It's a comedy <laughs> that includes romantic elements. Like, the Look, Rachel Weisz character I don't think is, even exists in the TV show, so. I've been watching a lot of Gilmore Girls, and that's a pretty <laughs> great Everyone romantic comedy. <laughs> that's, that's a true. The Luke, comedy, Luke right? or Lorelai, yeah, but then it, it fell apart, and it's, you know, whatever. Oh, don't then. tell me that. I'm, well, I'm too it only early. Well, it only fell apart because Amy Sherman-Palladino, the show's creator, left. Uh, she The seventh and final season was spearheaded by somebody else, and the dip in quality is noticeable and extreme. Uh, and tragic. But. Oh no! Well, I guess Lord we'll give up on that. Wait, you didn't no, know that, Patrick? No, the first six seasons are, are Nirvana. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think that it, it is. It, it's a really interesting topic to look at the the ways in which these forms deal with it. But I think you know, as we were saying earlier, it is distilled to this "will they or won't they" question. And n- dramatists and comedians alike, who are one and the same, have, have yet to find a similarly compelling question. Uh, that can they can apply like a formula uh, to work and uh, yeah I, I think that it's we've definitely entered this this new era and this is part 
of the reason why the rom-coms in the vein that we saw them in the 90s and that Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson tried to revive have sort of died off because audiences seem more interested in uh, movies that question those films now than uh, movies that engage in them. And yet maybe it's just American culture that can't support them because the French are pumping out romantic comedies like it's their day job and even the British do. I mean, we had About Time or whatever and... Well, About Time. Richard Curtis. Curtis. It's a bad movie. I mean, About Time is a bad movie. I agree with you. I put About Time in my John Wick category. But David loves Begin Again. uh, uh, No, but I do think that... that there is something to the Richard Curtis idea and that love actually, I mean, this is another conversation for another time, but that love actually uh, may have, uh, so we've sort of collectively decided that that was the logical end point of this one. Uh, it was the ultimate romantic comedy in, in not in that it was the best. Love died. Really we sent it the off. Last, like the end of Return of the that, King. That's just it. into we the horizon. Every story into this one. <laughs> and sent love it actually, off to the Shadowlands. <laughs> and love actually didn't even have to spend an hour and a half with any of these couples. It's like 20 yeah, minutes, 15 minutes like, with yeah. each couple. So. That's probably the ideal. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the the perfect form for it because uh, it can just ask the same question over and over and over and over. Will they? Nope. These guys won't. Yep. These guys will. Maybe. Who's now asking for a sequel about Laura Linney and Carl? (laughs) And it's also amazing about the movie how quickly, uh, and this just shows the mechanics of of, uh, this line of narrative, how quickly it sets it up. I'm thinking of the Martin Freeman story where he is a, you know, the sort of misbegotten, like, you know, sub, 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 sub plot uh, about the stand-ins of the sex movie. And you see them for all of four minutes of screen time and he looks at her and she looks at him and suddenly you have this whole relationship and you see this in a number of uh, short films and, and films of any kind. But it's like that easy to set it up and it's no more shallow than it is when stretched over 100 minutes with Katherine Heigl. Um, I guess what television or really ten needs seasons is, uh, of How I Met Your Mother, you know. Right. Te- television needs an anthology series, like a romantic comedy anthology series, which they attempted to do. They do, yeah. Ago. Love bites. Like, love bites. Yeah, love bites. Exactly. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Didn't watch that. That was a disaster. And, but and that so when you say like television needs. needs that, you mean the opposite. Well, they need television to do it well. They tried it again that. last year with a show, Mixology, I think it was called, oh, where it's yeah. just a bunch of couples in a bar. That. And you just hop around from couple to couple huh. in this one bar and this one night and they're interacting. And it should have been really interesting. It should have been like almost farcical, but it, it was terrible. So, but that concept, I think you're right. That would be fun if executed well, but so far. There's no hope. The rom-com is truly dead. There's no avenue that can get it right. <laughs> Rest in peace. Love is dead. Damn you, A to Z. <laughs> Well, the thing Ginsburg and everything. The thing is now, so A to Z was canceled after they shot ten episodes, but they have a thirteen episode order, so they're going to film the last three episodes. And now suddenly, I'm interested. On the most depressing set ever. (laughs) Now, but now I'm really interested because it's a contained thirteen episodes, and so now I'm much more interested than I would be if it were stretched out over several seasons. I'm like, okay, I can I could probably tolerate these guys for thirteen hours. So weird because the the intro that is delivered by Leela. What's her face? Katie Seagal. Thank you. Um, She says that the couple are going to date for eight months and three weeks and whatever, whatever. And I, I you, it immediately seems to kill the idea of this being a long-running yeah. show. It can't yeah, exist it for so 10 confusing. years. because It was very bizarre. Well, like if every um, episode is an actual day, then... Yeah, but 10 years from now, no, but they are also... Mega hit. 
They're also doing <laughs> They're um, each letter of the alphabet per episode. So in theory, there's what? only supposed to be as many episodes as there are letters in the alphabet. You right. know, they're like, C is for commitment. So they were just begging Nick. They were begging Nick to get canceled. <laughs> it's so, it's I such mean, a bizarre concept. It, it was concept. also so cheap. I mean, the leads are both very, very watchable. But uh, the show is just, it was so regressive and goofy and terrible. I don't know what it's they were thinking. Not good. But... It's not good. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to talk about Interstellar and all of the space travel and may- maybe make the Inception Brom noise a few times, just for old time's sake. Um. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write all over the internet, and I try and put everything on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And if you recall, we post all of these episodes on our website fightinginthewarroom.com where you can share them or comment or leave exciting praise nasty messages anything you like fightinginthewarroom.com I'm David Ehrlich I'm the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine our first book What I Love About Movies is now out in stores in America it is the year's best stocking stuffer don't miss it um, you can also find me right it's all the AV Club Complex playlist and others uh and you can find all of us together uh at fighting in the war room on facebook find yourself your square stocking this this christmas <laughs> um uh, i'm dave gonzalez i spell my first name da 70 that's my twitter handle i want to tell you about something very exciting uh mr joanna robinson and myself are going to do a test podcast about comic books called the thought bubble where we will answer your questions about comic books and comic book adjacent things um, there's a section for everybody. There's a section for people who are already into it called the advanced section. It'll be coming this Wednesday in this feed. So chances are you're already on board. Uh, see you. See you tomorrow. I'm Joanna Robinson. Uh, I will also see you tomorrow. Or you can read my work over on VanityFair.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Or if you want to call and leave your best impression of the Inception Brom on our voicemail, the number is 914-410-6450. If you just play the Inception button into the phone, we'll know. Doesn't count. (laughs) Doesn't count. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can also find me at FanFair.com or on Twitter at Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. That's also the place where you can follow all of us at F-I-T-W-R and answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Interstellar, which Oscar-winning actor or actress would you want to be trapped on a space mission with? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back bromming to you on Friday. And I'll write your name.